Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 126 and we're going to whiz about the Highfield following the final days of the Amandabeli at their home near the Mariko River in what is now Northwest Province. The four trekkers had survived the trauma of the Battle of Fechop. They had narrowly survived and they huddled together in Tabanchu. A form of unity was now required. These different footrecker parties under Salis, Portita, Maritz had to focus their minds on the main threat to their further expansion into southern Africa, Mzilikatsi of the Kamalu. A man born in Zululand, a raider of many across southern Africa, he who had defeated numerous clans on the Haafelt, the Huruchi, the Baralong, the Batlokwa, the Basutu feared him, the Griqua feared him, the Botswana hated him. The external threat to the footrekkers suppressed internal divisions but that wouldn't be for very long. Gerrit Maritz had arrived in Transorangia by now with a huge trek party, 700 men, women, children and servants. 100 of these were Boer men, a relatively large company of soldiers if you take the firepower of the day into account. And Gerrit Maritz was not your average trek Boer. He was a wagon maker from Graf Reinet, prosperous, more middle class, if you like, than merely a working farmer type. He was well-educated compared to the other foot trickers and young in his mid-thirties, a large man dwarfing most around him, his upper lip clean-shaven, as was the manner back in these days, but he also sported a beard noticeably darker than his tawny-coloured hair. He also painted his wagon light blue, not the usual green wagon adopted by most foot trickers, which allowed them to blend a little better into the felt, not for Gerard Maritz. He was also dressed up, Long coat, top hat, latest fashionable trousers. Maritz could crack a joke, but was a pillar of the Dutch Reformed Church. He regarded the Doppers, the extremist arm of the Trekboers, the most thin-lipped and orthodox of the church members, with some contempt. Maritz, like the other leaders of the Voortrekkers, though, believed in a divine order of things, and that he personally was destined for greatness. He was ambitious, like Porchita, and like Porchita he believed that his decisions were final. It was a serious meeting that Maritz, Porchita, Salirs and others held on the 2nd of December 1836, close to the mountain known as Tabanchu. The members gathered there and voted in a new Volksrat, a burger council, seven men of good standing, who would guide the Voortrekkers through the next steps. Maritz was voted in as chief judge and president. No surprise there. His trek party was the biggest, after all. Porchita was chief commandant, Lecha commandant or army commander. This management council was elected by using democratic principles and was really the first of its kind in South African history. The basic idea was to dominate Afrikaner politics for the next century and a half. Porchita, though, was determined to reinforce his own position, so he led his own war council. And then he did one. Amandabeli had proved to be extremely dangerous, a threat to all their future plans. It just so happened that Maritz had thought about the Voortrekker role in southern Africa and strongly believed in the trek as an enterprise of togetherness, a common concept which he called a Verenigte Maatschappie a united community. He used the phrase folk in a very different way to Porchita, believing in a nation, while Porchita was using the phrase as a group. 
Moritz was well educated in the democratic ideas of the day, post-Renaissance, and wanted any leader to be answerable to his council, his Burgerrat. Portgieter believed more implicitly in patriarchy, the leadership of one powerful man, responsible to his main family group and extended family members rather than the folk as a whole. He was fiercely autocratic. Moritz was more a solutions man. Portgieter was all about Skopskit and Donner. Saurol Solieris was part of the glue that kept these two men and their disparate ideas together, with his fervent Christianity and his concept of a preordained future, a constant reminder that they were indulging in most important matters. The burghers jointly decided that a commando should be set up to pursue Mzilikazi and destroy him, Solieris using words like, our enemy, rather than my enemy. When a disparate people who suffer from internal conflicts realize that there is an external threat which is existential in nature, they tend to band together to face this threat, whilst it's toast for them. Damat Kose had done just that against the British and the Amandebele with a new challenge to the Boers. The Trekkers were also motivated by a more primordial need called revenge. The Amandebele had killed their men, women and children. This could not go unpunished. They also wanted to recover their looted livestock and wagons, thus sending a message throughout southern Africa, like ripples of a pebble in a pool. Do not fight us, there will be a payment. What Salius and his friends didn't know was that this attitude would lead directly to the deaths of Peter Atif and his men and boys when they visited Dingaan. The Boers, by lashing out, were acting like any other African movement on the felt, Zulu, Mtetwa, Ndwandwe, any of these chiefs of the past, Chobe, Shaka, Dingeswayo, seeking to impose their power, they would kill and destroy everything they found, seizing the land through raiding and power. The poor trekkers who'd parked their wagons at Tabanshu weren't alone. Others nearby were also eyeing Mzilikazi. These were the raiders, the drosters of the Transorangia, who'd been threatened by the chief for two decades and sensed that finally there was another power block on the felt that could alter the equation. Had you headed back in time and observed the four trekkers who gathered at this point at Tabanshu, or to be more accurate, Blesbach, near Tabanshu, you would have been surprised. Many members of the Portgita trek, for example, were now impoverished, if not destitute. The new commandant, Hendrik Portgita, for example, had lost 5,000 sheep, 300 head of cattle, and 100 draft oxen at Fechop. Because he was a subsistence farmer like the Amakosa, the possession of livestock, particularly cattle, implied wealth. And the poor trickers at Blesbach were worried that Mzilikazi could be concocting another attack on them. On the 9th of December, a week after the Bergerat, a rumour of an impending advance of the Indebele reached these forlorn poor trickers. They immediately prepared a defensive lager, but it proved to be a false alarm. Then, two days later, on the afternoon of the 11th of December, another report was received which was also taken seriously. Maritz and Portgita pulled together another lager, but it was another false alarm. These alarms upped the ante. It was urgent that they deal with the Amandibeli threat. The Raad called for the commando to leave on the 20th of December, but Maritz wisely postponed departure. The commando was below strength. This gave him time to ride south, so he could recruit volunteers from among the Khoi and Griqua. Maritz returned on the 29th of December with these volunteers, the final commando would be made up of 107 mounted Boers, supported by 40 Griqua horsemen under Peter David, six members of Khat Taibosh's Karana, and 60 Baralong warriors on foot. 
When Siliers recounted the story for posterity many years later, he left out the fact that the Boers had coy and black help in the attack on Imzilikatsi. The coming fight against the Amandabeli was going to morph into a white versus black fight to reinforce the growing race narrative. During the apartheid era, the role played by the Baralong and Korana, along with the Griqua, was utterly avoided. It would have diluted the National Party's master race patter. Finally, on the 2nd of January, 1837, the commander left Blasbach on its way to Masecha in two sections. Commandant Potkita rode off after a prayer meeting conducted by Erasmus Smit, who was the unofficial domini or minister of the Voetrekkers. Moritz took off separately. I'll come back to the military matters, but first let's just focus on Meneer Smit. His message was based on the verses of 2 Chronicles 14.11. Lord, there is no one like you to help the powerless against the mighty. Help us, O Lord, our God. Smit, you see, was a bit of an enigma, because he was not a Domini. But he was Gerrit Maritz's brother-in-law, having married the president's sister, Susanna Maritz, who was famous for her bolshy direct talk. She was outspoken, and the Boers believed that in their marriage she wore the trousers, so to speak. Many salacious and mischievous minds were at work on the African hinterland. Smith, it was said, was an alcoholic. He was not a properly ordained priest. He could not officiate during weddings and baptisms, for example. Portheater made a show of never listening to the short, ruddy-faced Smith, whose ruddiness was apparently caused by his brandy consumption. Furthermore, he had a false left eye that appeared to roam around while his other fixed on an object. For some of the story in this episode, I'm using a doctorate thesis published in 2017 by Marlene de Beer. Just out of interest, Marlene's grandfather was a descendant of Susanna's brother, Gerrit Maritz. As I've noted before, the insistence of Voortrekker women, in particular for freedom from British rule, must not be underestimated as a motivation for their men. It was also a popular theme in what became known as the nationalist Volksmutter narrative. Men and women obviously sustained distinct roles at the time with Christianity providing the sanction for the subordination of women. These, though, can be overplayed. At Fechkop, it's known that women fired muskets and chopped off Amma and Debeli warrior hands and arms, but afterwards the men just didn't like to talk about it. There were other social tensions in 1836. The Trekkers who left the Cape did so against the wishes of the Dutch Reformed Church, so no officially sanctioned predikant was prepared to accompany Trekkers inland. Another massive ironic twist in this story is that Porchita was going to be administered by American missionaries rather than his own wannabe predikant, Erasmus Smith. But that's a story upcoming. So, enter stage left, Erasmus Smith and his memorable wife, Susanna. She was also living in Graf Renet when her brother Gerrit suggested they trek out of the colony to escape the clutches of the evil English in 1836. She and Erasmus Smith joined the Maritz trek, with her husband in a wagon loaned to her and her husband by her brother. As they travelled, Smith conducted church services three times on a Sunday and on Wednesday and Saturday evenings. Erasmus was a lay preacher. He'd been trained by the Netherlands Missionary Society between 1809 and 1829, but he was never formally inducted. Susanna, his wife, was the official who greeted churchgoers, the help meet, as they were known. Susanna Smith wrote in her diary as the family departed for Tabanshu, 
De Heere leide met kruiste martelen uit van onder Engelse verdrukken. Or, the Lord led his progeny of martyrs away from English oppression. We must be very careful inserting too much here. Some historians say that the early voortrekkers were not imbued with what we now call Afrikaner nationalism. It was less the product of its unique cultural roots than the result of the ideological labors of a modernizing elite seeking to ensure social cohesion in transitional times. Sorry, that was a bit of a mouthful, but that's academic speak, I guess. As the trekkers set out to destroy Mzilikazi, back in Tabanshu, women like Susanna Smith ran the show. Susanna often displayed obvious dissatisfaction with her husband's vacillating at public meetings, and she was clearly a woman born to lead. She would complain loudly that when the men returned from commando, she'd be relegated back to the kitchen or the helpmeet. She was married to Erasmus when she turned 13, after confirmation of her vows. He was 35. That meant Erasmus Smith was the same age as Susanna's mother, and the young girl said later that she was too fearful to resist this arranged marriage. It would have gone against both her parents and God, she said. But it also caused a deep-seated resentment to burn inside the young woman, which would flame throughout her life. Susanna often referred to her husband as the old gentleman S, or the old preacher, or old brother Smith. In her diary, he was both her elder and her hubby, a rather difficult diary to read, it must be said. Bizarrely, Erasmus also kept a diary in which he referred to Susanna's mother as Mother Moritz, while at the same time referring to his own wife as Mother Smith. Put another way, at the age of 13, Susanna became an unwilling sexual partner and domestic servant to an adult man who was her intellectual inferior and whom she did not love. But she respected him enough to bid him safe journey as the burghers under Portita departed on the 2nd of January 1837, and it's back to the commando we now return. A second section or detachment led by Gerard Maritz left the following day, with the men wearing distinctive red ribbons around their hats. So who was in overall command, the commandant or the president? They were leading two different sections, but historians generally agree it was Maritz, not Portita, who was the leader although he didn't have the military experience. As with everything African, leaders get to divvy up the spoils and the treasure, so this question was going to emerge later in a more pointed fashion. These 107 footrekkers, plus around 100 auxiliaries, including 40 mounted Griquas under Peter Davids, were joined, as I said, by 60 members of the Baralong tribe on foot, led by Chief Matlaba, whose main role was to herd the cattle back to Blasbach. It was time for Matlaba to get even. He had been a vassal chief under Mzilikazi, and the relationship had chafed at him for some time, as the Amandebele would show up and take whatever they wanted from his people, including his cattle and his women. The commando advanced in a northwesterly direction and crossed the Val River at Commando Drift, not far from the modern town of Makwasi. On their way, they did not find a single kraal or any sign of habitation. After crossing at Commando Drift, the wagons were left behind, while the commando continued northwest along the Kuruman Moseka Road. From there, it followed the road to Mariko Valley and aimed to hit the settlement from the northeast, the opposite direction from where the Drostas and the other trekkers had travelled into the Transvaal previously. 
Mzilikatsi regarded the northeast and west as safe zones, where the only travellers entering were usually friends or missionaries, hunters and traders, with permission to travel. As Borkita and Maritz had intended, Mzilikatsi's spies and agents further south failed to pick up the commander. He had no prior warning of their advance. They approached Mzilikatsi's military capital in the Maseja Basin, which was officially called Motsinyateng. It lay around 10 kilometers south of the modern town of Zirust, a well-watered and fertile valley surrounded by little hills, and known today as the Little Mariko or Klein Mariko. Three American missionaries lived alongside the Mzilikatsi. They are important to our story. Remember, Mzilikatsi had initially been welcoming of the missionaries. He knew that other African chiefs had them, including Moshweshri of the Basutu. Daniel Lindley, Henry Venable, and Dr. Alexander Wilson and their wives had rebuilt a mission station that had been founded a few years earlier by two French missionaries. Today, there was nothing left of Motsenyateng or the missionary station, but the farm on where the mission station stood is still known as Zenelingsbos, or Missionary's Post. Zalikati's main Mizi and Kral lay around 5 kilometers north of Zenelingsbos, and about 18 to 20 smaller kraals were scattered about the vicinity. It was home to around 2,000 warriors, but most of these were based south of Maseka. That's where his biggest threat apparently lay. This strategy makes sense, as his largest threats had come from there. The Boers were also taking aim at Kalipi, the commander who had led the various attacks on the foot-trekkers and who lived at Motsenyateng. There's a bit of Amandebele oral tradition about the attack, and a bit of Boer oral tradition. This is what happened. The commander approached before dawn on the morning of the 17th of January 1837 over Einkisa a small hill on the northeast side. Then they split up. Portgitter launched a flanking attack down the Groot Kloof, the large valley, from the northeast, while Maritz advanced directly from the east over Maseja Kopis. Then he turned north. Maritz was leading the frontal assault. Both were to regroup near the entrance to the Groot Kloof, if all went well. They thundered into the homesteads as the sun rose at five o'clock in the morning, taking aim first at a kraal closest to the American missionary station. The Amandebele were taken completely by surprise. They were awakened by the firing of the first shots and attempted to escape through the narrow openings of their huts. Then they fled in utter confusion while being hotly pursued by the detachment led by Potkita at a point in the valley where the Groot Kloof opened out. Then another group of Bindebele fled from Maritz and his burghers coming in from further east. Some Amandebele fled towards the Americans' house and others to a flaylant wetlands behind it at a place called Zenelingspreit, Missionaries Creek. The mission station was targeted by the Boers who took aim at the Amandebele sheltering there. Some rounds crashed through the windows, others hit the walls. One bullet smashed a window where Venable and his wife were sleeping. After the first kraal was torched, Maritz approached the Americans and assured Dr. Wilson that they would not do the missionaries any harm. He also invited them to leave with the commando, as it would not be safe for them to stay behind because they were unharmed and the Boers had harmed everyone else. This raid, though, was not yet over. Then Debele fled east as far as the current railway line and then turned north, but the Boers were galloping along, mowing them down. As the homesteads awoke to the battle, warriors began to fight back. The resistance slowed the commando down. Huts were now on fire, women and children were screaming, and the Baralong and Griqua along with the Kora began rounding up the cattle, kraal after kraal. 
The sun rose, casting its rays on a large group of Aman Debele warriors who'd managed to organize themselves and who converged on where the modern railway siding is today, planning a counter-attack. The Boers had realized by now that neither Mzilikazi nor Kalipi were present. They had somehow missed their main targets. As the Amandabele tried to execute a horns of the bull formation, the Fuertrekkers opened fire on both sides until the warriors gave up and fled north. On came the commandos seeking revenge. Fourteen kraals had come under attack. All were now on fire. Amandabele women and children were either shot or stabbed to death or had fled the Baralong, killing anyone they could find. Within half an hour, this attack was over. The Boers searched for further warriors, and then, by midday, arrived back at the missionary station. The Americans had to make a quick decision. Stay behind and face some Zilikasi, or leave for good. Maritz and Portkita gave them a few minutes to decide. They knew the three had to leave immediately, as the Amandibeli reinforcements were likely to be on their way. Mzilikatsu, you see, had demonstrated an ambivalent attitude towards the missionaries. His message of blood and guts was being opposed by these Americans preaching God and love and peace. So, while allowing the missionaries to live alongside for diplomatic reasons, he forbade his own subjects from attending their church services. They were getting more and more frustrated. Leaving with the attackers, on the other hand, would mean giving up their dream and their calling, namely to bring the gospel of Christ to the Amandabele. They have sacrificed everything to do this, including undertaking a dangerous sea journey from the United States, lasting some months, and then an even more dangerous trip by Oxwagon all the way from Cape Town. They had built up this ruined station, learned Amandebele, and Dr. Wilson had survived a near-death experience with rheumatic fever in 1836, only a few months before, that had killed his wife. Her body was buried at the station, and now he would have to leave this important spot. The three had another option. That was in Port Natal, where the American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions had established another missionary station in March 1836, working amongst Dingaan Zulu. So, with heavy hearts, they decided to leave Mariko, packing two ox wagons in less than an hour, leaving their library. Then this bipolar party, the missionaries heavy-hearted, the Boers, Griqua, Korana and Baralong exultant, they headed out. 6,500 head of cattle, thousands of sheep, were herded off by the Baralong, along with the two missionary ox wagons and the five Americans, the missionaries and two of their wives. They trekked the entire day and then that night without stopping, trying to put as much distance between themselves and the Ama and Debele as possible. What happened next is for episode 127. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the inclination. It helps increase the visibility of the series. You can also head off to the website desmondlatham.blog if you want to contact me. There's a form there or directly through Twitter at deslatham. Until next, Tootsies.